And we are back with The Chosen Journey, Big Money Grip, Steve Carsey, Chapter 9, Close Your Mentality, Part 2. I did not, by the way, I actually have that Chosen Journey shirt in the back now. We talked about it in the previous chapter. Uh, I have it in, in, in some colors. I didn't specifically pick uh, Mets orange and blue. but I was just, wondering. I swear I did it. I just, <laughs> I love orange and blue. Those are like my colors. Those are my go-to. And I like the way it kind of blended off of it with the uh, color of the logo. So that's why I picked it. But of course, now we end up back at Chase Stadium. We didn't intend for that to happen, but that's where the universe led you to. So I wanted to pick it up now, uh, speaking as far as John Rocker and how life had, had evolved for you and for him, obviously. Um, Atlanta, you knew was a short-term stop. Maybe they were going to uh, want to sign you. Probably at this point, once you're there, you already made it this far. Was there talk at all Atlanta as far as a contract-wise, or you were going to play out the season and see where free agency was going to lead? Yeah, no, there was no talk at that point. I mean... Uh, obviously getting traded at the end of uh, June, you have July, August, September. Uh, they brought Steve Reed and I for, for you know, to bolster the bullpen and, and you know, uh, get down the stretch uh, in that tough NL East. And then obviously they wanted to move on from John Rocker and, and they found an opportunity to do that. So, uh, like I said, I think it worked out for, for both teams. Uh, I can't speak for the Indians. Uh, at this point, but uh, I know it worked out really well for Atlanta and, and, and for myself. You know, there, there was such talk at the time that they were just going to outright release Rocker or who knows what's going to happen with him. And it's amazing because, you know, he's one of the top closers in the game at that point and so young, le a lefty with power. You just don't see that, you know, and it just kind of came all unwinding at one point, but they, they bring you in with the year you're having. So they got to be thrilled. Like you said, Season plays out. You're granted free agency November 5 of 2001. So now, okay. the fun, now the fun begins. When you start that process uh, and you're thinking through as far as your needs from a free agency standpoint, uh, what, what was, where was your mind was at? What were your criteria as far as picking your next team? I wanted to win. Uh, at that point, I had made a little bit of money. I wanted to... Uh, you know, obviously get the best deal that I could possibly get. And I wanted to find a team where uh, I was going to fit in and I had an opportunity to, to win and, and, and win a World Series, especially if I was going to be in that place uh, long term. So uh, I just uh, I let my agent at the time know that. And, you know, when he started fielding calls, uh, you know, that was really the criteria that I told told him not that we would have shut out any other team that might not have been uh, a playoff contender at that time but uh, you know in, in a perfect world that's really what I wanted uh, I presume this was not Scott Boris at the time no I actually the agent I had at the time was Alan Hendricks uh, you know he was the Hendricks brothers uh, the Hendricks brothers and they had quite a few uh, prominent players and uh, you know I was fortunate enough to be able to, you know, interview them and, and sign with them uh, from the ripe old age of 18. And they were my agents uh, the whole time I was in professional baseball. Really well-known guys. And I can tell you, having never met them, but just reputation-wise was not going to gouge teams, going to take advantage of, of the players. They were known at the time, straight shooters. Like it seemed like people who were represented by them got fair deals and that was kind of the game plan. So uh, I... Based on your experience at this point, 
you're still calling the shots, obviously. Like you're directing them of who to talk to, not to talk to, where, where you're going to steer to. Like, well, you're letting your agents handle it. How, how much communication do you guys have at this point from the start of free agency? You, you can have as much communication as you want. Uh, at the end of the day, when I talk to him, he goes, I'm going to present you with any of the offers that I get from the teams that are calling me. Uh, and at the end of the day, you make the choice. I can, can direct you wherever you would like to go and I'll get you the best deal possible. But uh, this is about you and uh, you make the choice because you're going to have to live and be with this team uh, for however many years that uh, we're going to sign if we're going to get a long-term deal. Uh, and that was fair. I, I just told him, go do his work, do what he needed to do. And uh, we, we kept in touch, you know, once a week and he would just update me on uh, any information that he had. And, uh, you know, not being part of the experience myself, I mean, not played professional baseball, but having kind of anything, you know, you watch uh, TV shows and movies on this stuff and Jerry Maguire and you're thinking to yourself, do the agents reach out on their initiative to their connects? Do the players come and say, you know, can you kind of maybe try for these teams for me? This is where I really want to end up. Or is it really seeing which teams are interested in your case? It, it's seeing, seeing what teams was, were, was interested. You know, uh, I felt like I had put a really good run together in 99, 2000 and 2001. Uh, I had a string of three years in a row. 99, I had, uh, you know, strained my oblique. So I only ended up with like 50 games. Um, in, in 2000, I believe I pitched in 70 plus games in 2001, 70 plus games. Uh, so the last three years of my track record being healthy, uh, and, and throwing the ball was, was, you know, was pretty good. So I felt really comfortable going into free agency and, uh, you know, he has a, a good pulse. Your agent has a good pulse on, uh, you know, where, where you're going to land as far as years and dollars go and, uh, you know, most of the time they're, they're on the, the correct side of that and, and they have a good understanding. So, uh, you know, I let them do, I let them do their work on that. Uh, you know, that's what they're good at. That's what they get paid for. And, uh, at the end of the day, I just wanted to, uh, you know, land in a place that, uh, I was going to be comfortable. You know, in my mind, there's, I think there's really three criteria for most people and you can't get all three generally it's money winning and the role. You know, and when I projected you at the time, I thought you're going to go somewhere. You're going to be the closer. That's probably where he's going to go. He's going to get, be have that kind of role and he's going to get the dollars. Ended up being not necessarily the role, but the dollars were there. And certainly the winning potential was there. And, but then you go start, but you know, I've heard so many things as far as people from different uh, parts of the world that come and they say, I want to play in this city. I don't want to play in that city. Then other people are like the tax rates. You know, there's so many things, the schools, depending if they have children, so there's so many factors that people can look at a team and say that that goes beyond those. But uh, generally, if, if the stats are there and and the personality there and people like you, they're going to find a way to put you on. At what point did you know the Yankees were interested? Well, I wasn't beholden to any city or any team or anything like that. Uh, my direction to him was go get me the best deal and we'll see where everything lands. Uh, there, were other, there were other teams that were uh, involved with my agent, um, you know, and, um, you know, the closer role was, was talked about uh, on a few of those teams that were interested uh, in me, um, you know, and then, you know, December came around um, and, you know, we got to the point, I didn't want this to drag into 
past Christmas or anything like that. So beginning of December rolled around, I had a conversation with him. Uh, he had done most of his work uh, through November at that time for, for a month. And uh, he had everything laid out in front of him. We discussed each team. We discussed the parameters of the dollar value. And then obviously uh, we discussed what role I was going to play because uh, at that time, there were so many roles that I could have done because uh, I, I, I was doing all of them. I had started in 98 some, and then I really hit my stride in the bullpen. And that's where teams saw me, which was perfectly fine with me uh, being at the back end, whether it be a setup man or a closer. Uh, and, you know, uh, we went through the, we went through the process. We, we talked about the contracts and, uh, you know, he told me everything. And then I, I basically said, listen, Give me a night to sleep on it, and I'll have an answer for you uh, in the morning. And can we can we say at this point who the other finalists were? Uh, there were a few teams. I mean, uh, Boston was in on on it. Uh, I really, you know, liked you know Fenway Park and pitching there. I mean, a lot of my decision also was uh, places that I really liked to pitch and felt yes. comfortable when I was on the mound because that, you know, translates in, into some success. Of course. Uh, you know, Baltimore was in there. So I was really in the AL East mostly. There was a couple other teams because uh, Mike Hargrove was coaching uh, or the manager of the, the Baltimore Orioles that time. And I had Mike in 98, yes. uh, 90, 98 and 99 in Cleveland. So uh, and 2000, and he got the job in 2002 with Baltimore. So Mike was, I knew Mike, Mike knew me, um, and he knew what he was going to get from me. So they were also a finalist. And, uh, you know, I obviously chose uh, the New York Yankees uh, for a few different reasons. Well, let's, let's walk through them now because it's uh, funny about the AL East and, you know, the history as far as that division goes and how much of a powerhouse. They were talking about the NL East and what was going on there with Atlanta. But, man, that AL East has always been a real toughie. I'm sure also the Yankees know that the Red Sox are sniffing around for you. Maybe they're going to up uh, the offer a little bit, but I'm sure it doesn't hurt also to be playing with uh, a character like Mo Rivera, right? Well, that was one of my, uh, that was one of the things where I knew I wasn't going to close. I knew I would, would close some games if, if Mo may have gone down, which happened in 2002 and was, and stepped in and just kind of filled in until he was healthy again. But uh, you know, uh, again, the criteria, right, is uh, it's a winning team. You know, they won four out of five World Series. They just lost to the Diamondbacks in 2001 uh, on, the, on the blue shot by Luis Gonzalez uh, that, that scored the, the winning run. Um, so I, I knew they were going to be competitive. I knew they had money. Always going to be at the trade deadline, you know, picking up players. Uh, you know, they had signed Giambi. Uh, you know, that they, they had obviously – all the returning guys coming back like Jeter, Bernie Williams and uh, Alfonso Soriano, all those guys, you know, um, Posada, um, you know, then they had obviously Pettit and Clemens and El Duque and David Wells and Mike Messina. So I, I knew we were going to compete and we were going to compete well. Um, I, I knew that I was going to set up for Mariano Rivera from the right-hand side. Mike Stanton was setting up and pitching in the middle of the game from the left-hand side. So, uh, and then the dollar value ended up being, uh, you know, pretty similar to a lot of those teams. And, um, you know, 
uh, you get taxes more in New York than anything, but obviously, you know, when your agent goes through that process, he compensates for some of the tax bracket stuff and, and tries to get a little bit more money. So uh, I was very comfortable with, uh, you know, the years, the role uh, and the money. And, uh, you know, the next day I called them back and, and, and told them uh, what my decision was and that I wanted to play for the New York Yankees and growing up there was definitely, uh, you know, an added bonus, um, even though it comes with some challenges with having friends and family in the area. So I guess the Mets were not calling that particular year and uh, you're focused, you're saying on the AL side, but uh, before we get into how that year transpired, uh, was, was there ever a point that you came close to, to being with the Mets, as far as you know? No, there was not. And, and Texas was in on that, uh, in on those teams as well. There was, there was those four teams and it was mostly American League teams. So Texas, I, I don't know. That's uh, for pitchers. Uh, it's kind of like Colorado, right? A bit. It's uh, can be intimidating, I would say, as far as uh, it, it was hot. They yeah. didn't have a roof uh, at the time. Um, but that we can spin off into another chapter because that's a, a whole different story on how that uh, that transpired as well. Because John Hart was negotiating the contract with me in Cleveland prior to trading me for John Rocker in 2001 and uh he left in 2001 at the end of that season and took the gm job for the texas rangers uh in 2002 and tried to get you over there that's correct well when you whenever you look at signings and off seasons it's always interesting the ones that sign in early december you know because once christmas hits new year's hits like you said it gets to be a bit of a scary period at that point then you're starting off in New Year's. Some people sign early in January. I, if I was a player, I'd never read one of those ones that are not, not signed in spring training is just around the corner. It's nice to have that certainty, move on with your life, right? And, and, and continue on. Um, that being said now, you know, how did it feel the first time putting on that hat? When, and when did you get to put the Yankees on, hat on for the first time? Was it at spring training or were you trying them on uh, after the signing? No, after the signing, once uh, once I agreed to the deal, I had to go and fly to New York. I had to do a physical, make sure everything was uh, was intact, so to speak. And they they you know did the full physical on me. Got to the stadium, uh, had a small press conference uh, with a couple of the other guys. Rondell Rondell White was there. Um, he had signed Former John Vanderwall. Yeah. Yeah, John Vanderwall was there, uh, Jason Jambi was there, and myself. So uh, I was able to, you know, go to the Yankee Stadium uh, uh, underneath and then, uh, you know, put the hat on and put the jersey on, walk on the field. And, uh, you know, it was, a, it was a pretty amazing feeling. I mean, you grow up in New York and you know the history of who has played at old Yankee Stadium, uh, you know, uh, all the greats uh, in the outfield and the infield, and then to be able to walk on the field and, and just kind of go through Monument Park and, and have an understanding of that. You go there as a visiting player and it doesn't hold uh, the same sentiment. It, it's just, it's one of those things when you have a Yankee uniform on and a Yankee hat, you walk through there, uh, you know, it just, uh, it fills up with chills. How different for you as a player and as a fan of the game was old to new Yankee Stadium? Did you, did you ever assess the differences between the two facilities? Uh, to be honest with you, I couldn't tell you because I've never stepped foot in the Yankee Stadium. Really? Yeah. 
Wow. I would have guessed uh, as a, a native New Yorker, for sure you'd have been there at some point. I, ha I have not gone back, never played against the Yankees in the new stadium as a coach. Yes. You know, obviously I got done before 2009 was, was the first year of new Yankee stadium, but uh, uh, yeah, have not uh, gone back or, or stepped foot into, uh, into the new Yankee stadium. So when you're signing there, you, you know the role. You're going to be the setup man for Mariano Rivera. Pretty freaking cool. You know, yep. one of the greatest, if not the greatest closers of all time. And yep. you're also Mariano Insurance because you never know what's going to happen. And sure enough, Correct. it ended up happening. 12 saves that year for yourself. Mo got 28. Those were your last MLB saves ever after that year. Yep. Was it a difficult thing from your perspective knowing that maybe the closer job will not happen again, that I'm going to have a different kind of role. Did you divest yourself of it? Was that difficult? Not difficult at all because I had opportunities to sign elsewhere to be the closer. So that was a cho choosing of my own, uh, of my own mind and of what I wanted to do. So uh, it, for me at that point, it really wasn't about being a closer and, you know, stacking up saves it was about winning uh you know i, I signed a four-year deal with the yankees uh i got paid very handsomely for that at the time uh i was the highest aav pitcher that was a non-closer um so you know uh, my agent did a great job and i was extremely happy walking into that situation knowing what my job was and what i was going to do and having a chance to win every time uh you know, I went to the ballpark. I think knowing that you can have that role, like you're saying, if you wanted it, and the fact that you're beside Mariano Rivera, literally anybody who's going to be in the league and they're in, you're sitting in your position, they're going to have your role. Nobody's unseating him at this point. Now, what was the feeling uh, meeting him as a teammate for the first time? Oh, it's great. He's uh, he's fantastic. As as easygoing as you could ever imagine. Uh, easy to talk to, loves to talk baseball and uh, just learned a lot from him uh, during the years I was there. I mean, it's, uh, you know, everybody, everybody on the outside sometimes thinks like some of these guys are, you know, uppity up and they're not going to talk and they're, they're doing their own thing and they've had so much success, but most of the guys, I would say 95 to 98% of the guys are down to earth. They're just like, a, a, you know, a normal human being who you are friends with. Uh, now now they're, they're your teammate. So, uh, you know, walk into there, you meet them, uh, you know, you get along with them. And, you know, when, when you sit there and you look around the locker room and you have 25 guys uh, that are your teammates that you're going to spend eight months with, uh, you, you get to become very friendly very quick. Uh, I remember going back and watching tapes of Mariano when he was a starter coming up, watching him early on. And it's amazing, you know, what it, it cause it, you, you're used to this man coming out, enter Sandman, ninth inning, done deal, <clears throat> but he was a starter early on. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's when, he, when most guys are starters when they come up through the minor leagues, because like I said before, uh, you know, you get a bullpen every between the starts, um, you know, you get to go out there and throw five or six innings and you get to work on your stuff. You get to work on your command. And then when the time is right, if the team feels like that's not going to be the position for you, they'll transition you into, uh, you know, a bullpen arm. And then 
you just kind of see where it goes. And, you know, he had one pitch, but he can do, he, he could do whatever he wanted with that pitch one side or the other, and then just buried in on left-handers. It's, it was, it's an amazing accomplishment what he was able to do with just one pitch and how far he took it. So it's a very special and unique human being uh, as a closer. And I'm not sure we'll ever see somebody like that again. How do you coach somebody like that? When you have that one pitch, when you're that established at that point, like what do the pitching coach, bullpen coach say to him at this point? You just not try, you try not to screw him up. I mean, yeah. <laughs> that's at that point, that's what it is. You just kind of keep them in the straight and narrow. Uh, it's just like Josh Hader, you know, there's not too much uh, uh, to what he does. Very different. Obviously he has three pitches and whatnot, but to me right now, he's the best closer in all of baseball, hands down. And, you know, you just try to keep him on the straight and narrow. You just try to keep his mechanics smooth and fluid. And then you'd let him just go do his thing when he goes out there uh, in the ninth inning. And, and you just rely on, you know, his natural talent to, to take over. Would you say they're parallel? Would you say that there's a lot of similarities, similarities, similarities between Josh Hader and Mariano Rivera? There's very many similarities in the way they think, in their demeanor, and how they handle the situation. Obviously, Josh has still got a long ways to go. And, you know, this is only his fourth year, fifth year in the big leagues. He's got another year of arbitration, I think. But so it's it's four going on five right now. Yeah. Uh, Mariano did it for 20. Mariano had one pitch. Josh has three. But Josh has a very similar pitch that is really tough to hit. The fastball he throws is very unique. It yeah. comes from a very unique angle. And guys just have a tough time with it. And then, you know, you add in all of those other uh, factors that are very similar between Mo and, and Josh. Uh, you know, that that's what makes them great. Mariano was as automatic as they come. I mean, back in the day, it was unbelievable. I remember that Red Sox series in the playoffs, though, and, you know, they're up 3-1 and, and Mo's on. So this, this is game is over. And I fall asleep on the couch watching it. I wake up and then I missed everything and I just see the final score. How did the Red Sox come back? You know, and you yeah. just don't see that. It's, it doesn't happen. But he's human. Yeah. he wasn't a robot, even though he was as automatic as they come. Yeah. Everybody can have their day. Absolutely. You know, and it's very similar with Josh. Josh gave up the home run to Freddie Freeman last year, right, in Atlanta. And it was the difference maker in a one-run game. So, listen, uh, when you have great players facing each other and, and competing against each other, uh, you know, one has to win, one has to lose. And it's not always going to go your way all the time. And you have to learn how to handle failure. Uh, to be able to enjoy all the successes that you have. Having been in the closer mentality, setup man, when things don't go your way, when that game just doesn't doesn't transpire the way you want it to, how do you walk off that mound? How do you block it off? How do you begin fresh the next time around? Everybody's a little bit different, right? It's a it's a personality thing. Um, what was you what know? Was your, what, did you have secrets particular? What, what worked for you? Yeah. The, the best thing that worked for me was I gave myself the opportunity to think about and re, replay it in my mind until midnight. And then once midnight hit and the new day started, I would flush it and just be done with it. That's the past. I can't change it. It's over and done with. 
I may have that opportunity tonight when I go to the ballpark and I got to be ready for that opportunity. And that's kind of uh, how I handled it, whether I was closing games and, and blew the game and then had to be ready the next day or if it was setting up and, you know, gave up the lead in a, in a certain inning, uh, you know, it was like, okay, I can think why that happened and why I wasn't successful tonight. But at midnight, when that day turns over to 12.01 and it's a new day, uh, I'm going to flush it and I'm going to be ready to go again tomorrow. Living in New York when you were there and you're playing in New York, how close did mm -hmm. you live to the stadium? How did you forget? Was it very surreal now you're living back in the same city? Yeah, I was living in Manhattan. No, I grew up in Queens. Uh, it's a little bit different. I live no, you're, in not doing that you're not doing that commute, obviously. I wasn't doing that commute, but I, I lived on 61st and 1st, between 1st and York, uh, very close to the you know Upper East Side and uh, kind of in, in the middle between Midtown and, and Upper East Side. Uh, you know, I had the FDR where I could take right up into the Bronx. Uh, I, I, I know the, I know the city. Well, uh, there was three different ways I could get to the ballpark if I wanted to, if there was traffic. And then I always had to train if I wanted to jump on the four train and, uh, take it to 161st street, get off the lap, the platform and then walk into the stadium. I imagine from all the cities you played in, I would assume that you were most recognized in New York. Would that be a first thing? Uh, you know, I mean, I would, yeah, that, that's, that's a fair assessment. When I signed there, I had already established myself a little bit. Um, you know, um, it was, I was and having those, success. And, and, those, and those fans, know this, and those fans, know and they know stuff. the sports. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. No doubt. I would say, I would say they're in Cleveland because Cleveland's such a small city yes. and that's kind of where I, that's kind of where I started to establish myself in the bullpen and had some really good successful years. So in a small town like that, if you go out to a restaurant or something, you, you kind of get noticed there. New York, you can get lost a little bit because it's such a big city, mm -hmm. but again, uh, what a great sports town. What a, what a great place to play. And, and the fans really know their stuff. You know, uh, I don't recall ever seeing in the papers, you know, uh, Steve Carsey uh, being at the nightclub, uh, disco till uh, three in the morning, out in the alleyways, you know, uh, reputation wise, you're a baseball guy, you work hard in the baseball field. And, uh, you know, uh, I'm sure, especially being in New York, the distractions can be there. But certainly, you know, uh, that that wasn't, I think, your style. Well, it, it, I was just very fortunate enough. I grew up in New York City. I got to read the newspaper, the Daily News, and the, and the Newsday and uh, the New York Post every day uh, on the bus when I went to high school. I had an hour. I had an hour drive on a on a couple different buses to get to my high school. Uh, and I used to buy the papers in the morning, two papers, and read the papers. So you get to understand what New York's about and the expectations the fans have for you. Uh, you know, you get to see you know, players that, you know, when I was in high school, players that were playing for the Yankees, if they were out and they were in the tabloids, you get to see that stuff. So uh, maybe I had a head start knowing that this was, you know, something that could happen and would happen. Uh, so I just try to remove myself from that kind of situation and, and, and not be, not be a distraction to the team. So you can't say it, but I can say it because I, I did mention that I used to love autographs back in the day. And this is pre-social media, pre-internet, 
all this jazz. And it was a lot different back then. I remember you, Melito Perez and Luis Polonia going off in the car at like two in the morning. I saw you, you know, <laughs> it was so different. Uh, George Brett, uh, one of the greatest of all time. I remember him. Uh, he hit for the cycle in Toronto. I was at the game. I missed the, the home run. He had the single double triple. He was a home run away from the cycle. And I, I the ball bounced right off me. I missed that ball. But George Brett came back to the hotel afterwards and he was having a good time and partying, but you would not see that today. It was such a different time back then. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. Um, you know, that's guys, that's how guys used to unwind a little bit. They go to the hotel bar, have a couple of drinks after the game. Uh, you know, you could have a few drinks in the clubhouse on the road uh, back in the day. They don't really do that anymore. Uh, it's just, uh, you know, it's just changed and, and, and you have to adapt to that. But, uh, you know, that was that was the 80s and the 90s as opposed to where we're at in today's game. Much, much, much different. And as far as company wise, keeping in during the times in New York, uh, teammates you were closest to as far as ones that mentored you, one that also you, but you are now in the role of mentor as well. Who were the guys that stick out to you as far as that you hung out with the most or closest on the Yankees squads? Well, we had a veteran team, right? Uh, I mean, there's a lot of guys. I was a little bit older at the time. There's a lot of guys there who, uh, you know, have kids and are married and whatnot. But, you know, um, I don't really segregate myself from anybody. You know, I hung out with, uh, you know, Giambi because I knew him from Oakland. Uh, you know, I was able to uh, develop a, a, a pretty good relationship with Derek Jeter and, and be able to talk with him. Obviously, Clemens and Pettit had the Hendricks brothers so I knew them and they love to play golf so uh you know you can kick it with them uh my my locker was next to Mike Mussina so I got to speak with him quite a bit uh you know so yeah so I got to uh I was very fortunate to play with some great players and, and to learn from some great players and and gain knowledge from them so uh you know I, I don't try to keep myself to either pitchers or hitters and I just tried to, to mingle and and be friends with everybody because it's a it's a team sport and uh, you win as a team and you lose as a team. That's a big time clubhouse. That's a lot of egos. That's a lot of superstars. And how did they manage to keep them all in check? Like Giambi has a bigger than life personality, you know, same with Clemens. But I guess when they come together in that clubhouse, it, we're, we're off to work and it's one thing, we're winning, right? Yeah, Joe Torre did a great job. I mean, you have a, you know, a veteran manager and Mel Stottlemyre was there with them. They've been together for a long time. They were in New York for a very long time. Joe was with the Mets and then he became, you know, over the Yankees with the boss. And, uh, you know, he just had a, he had a knack for understanding players and handling them uh, and, and just uh, having open lines of communication. So the things we see on TV as far as interview wise and the personality, the way we see it, including Joe Torre, what you see is what you get. Are they what you expect? Yeah, for those guys. It, yeah, I mean that's exactly what uh, what it is. I know Joe's doing a little bit for Major League Baseball right now, but uh, you know what, what what you see is what you get from those guys. Uh, great communicators. Uh, you know when when you have good communicators and you know everybody knows that you're on the same page with them, it's 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 very easy to uh, to run a clubhouse. And it blows my mind because you take any one of those guys and you throw them on any team. And they're essentially the main guy, you know, so you have a bunch of main guys together. They were a pleasure to watch, you know, and I'm glad you were able to spend the time with them. It would be nice to get the ring with them, obviously, but it would have been. Yeah. But 
It's never too late. You never know. Yeah. As we're as we're polishing off the closer mentality for this chapter, I have one question for you. His name has come up a couple of times now in our discussions. Uh, come up on uh, another podcast that I had uh, shot before. Shohei Otani. Got to ask you, my friend, because uh, I know we're all marveling at what he's doing. And uh, in this day and age, you don't see that. You, you haven't seen it for many, many years. In your mind where he's at, I got to ask you, knowing what you know from a coaching perspective, do you see long-term him staying in a, as a starting pitcher, pitching at all? Do you see him maybe relieving at some point, maybe being closer? What do you project for him at this point? I think he's going to do both as long as he can. He's that talented and he's that special uh, at being able to hit and pitch. Uh, I, the only way that I see him uh, diminishing any pitching role is if he has any some some sort of injury, uh, arm injury or whatnot, is the only way I think he would kind of, you know, uh, filter out of that role. But uh, to, to watch him doing what he's doing and uh, to watch him on a nightly basis be able to bounce back, people don't realize how hard it is to both hit and pitch. It's hard enough to do one in the big leagues and how much and very time consuming. Uh, to do all of that and gain the, all the information that you need, but he's super talented and I see him doing both for a very long time. And I see him doing both in an angel's uniform for a very long time. How the hell is he doing this? Considering like you're saying, it's so difficult to do one of the roles, let alone two. And why are we not seeing more Otanis over the course of all these years? But you're not seeing more Otanis because guys can't do it. <laughs> it's too hard. <laughs> that tells you how special yeah. this guy is and what he's capable of doing. Uh, believe me, I think there are a lot of guys who wish they could do both. But once you get an infielder or an outfielder on the mound in a game, uh, you know, even cleaning up a game that's blowout and they pitch, they realize how hard it is uh, to, to do that. Um, so it's not that guys don't want to do it. Um, you know, to be frank and quite honest, there are just not many guys who are very talented like Shohei Otani that can do it. I think he's worth the price of admission alone. And, you know, when we reflect over the years of some of these great superstars in baseball and, you know, you have the opportunity to see them on the mound, you know, they're pitching in your city, go see them because you don't know when you're going to get that chance again. And it's, it's, it's a marvel to see, like you said, what this man is doing. It's like blowing my, you know, mind. Who the last guy to do it is the last guy to, uh, you know what? I should know this. It's funny. It's escaping me right now. Go for it. The great Bambino. There must have been somebody else, really. There must. You have you uh, you come up with somebody else that is pitched and hit the way both of those guys are doing oh, it right no. now, or yeah. the guy's doing it right now, and the guy who did it back in the twenties and thirties. You give I, me somebody in between that has pitched and, and hit like that, and, like that, and, and I, we'll we'll discuss it. I agree. I was trying to think of who's the last person that was at any kind of level pitching and hitting, attempting to doing what, what Shohei Otani is doing. I know there must've been somebody. There was we, my, uh, Mike Lorenzen, okay. Cincinnati, yes. but it, yeah. it's, it's, it, it's not even close to either one of those guys. No, that's like comparing beef jerky to a $200 steak. You can't do Sorry, Michael, but uh, it's facts. <laughs> but uh, I, I actually did do that comparison as far as I think what he's doing now and, and fans have been yelling at me on the podcast from saying it. I think it's more special than what Babe did because in Babe's day, you know, when he's going up there as a hitter, you're facing guys that have 150, 200 pitches. They all pitch complete games all day long. And these guys were not going to performance centers in the off season, you know, and 
in the conditioning they were. It was a way different time in Babe's day to what Hotani as a hitter is facing all these specialists like and, and as a pitcher facing the, the hitters that he's facing today. It is a way different game today. If Babe Ruth came out today, I don't know if you're going to have the same results, quite frankly. Well, I'm, I'm not debating that. I'm yeah. just saying in, in the era that he played and in the era of today, the, those are the two guys to me that are comparable who pitched for a very long time at a high level and hit for a very long time at a high level. And Shohei Otani's got a long way to go to do, still do both, but he's proving that he can do it. Well, we're proud of him. We love watching him. I know Kingston loves watching him as well. Your son. I know Babe is sure somewhere does. up there watching it with a smile, probably with a beer in his hand at the, uh, at the bar, wherever he is. And uh, <laughs> it, it's great to see because it brings excitement, you know, like the Turk Wendells of this game that would go and brush their teeth, you know, uh, in between innings. That's one of the things in, in today's society in general and in baseball, it's nice to have characters. It's nice to have personalities. And in sports in general, I hope in baseball we keep seeing these characters because that adds to the flavor of the game. Absolutely, especially when they're talented and, and, and can put a product on the field that uh, is well worth watching. Win-win. You know, people thought the Turk Wendell was an interesting guy. Then they met John Rocker and they thought Turk was actually pretty normal after that. <laughs> when we shoot our next chapter, which will be chapter 10, uh, Steve is going to be sporting the new merch. He's going to have that on together with the Brewers hats. Mr. Carsey, Big Money Grip, always a pleasure, my friend. Jonathan, thank you. It's, it's always fun to uh, sit in here and talk about many different, uh, many different things and, and talking about uh, the closer mentality, uh, part one and part two, is, uh, has, has really been a joy. And again, you don't always know where we're going with these and you won't know where chapter 10 goes. But until next time, my friend, thank you. Absolutely. Thanks.